Where Are We With Codependency, featuring Sarah Michaud. Talking about substance use and mental health would also mean discussions around relationships. Sarah Michaud, author of Co-Crazy, joins this episode to talk about codependency not only with the connection between substance use and relationships, but in general within human connection. How accurate are we with using the term codependency? Are we looking at changing the language around it? What are ways we can direct it towards being more comfortable with ourselves? Our guest on this episode is Dr. Sarah Michaud, who is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in central Massachusetts. For over 30 years, her main field of practice has been helping families and individuals recover from drug and alcohol addiction, as well as from the unhealthy codependent relationships that occur. She completed her doctorate program at the California School of Professional Psychology in San Diego, then moved back to Boston to work at a well-known psychiatric hospital, where she helped to open a residential program for duly diagnosed clients. Sarah's unique position as an authority in the field is also due to growing up in an alcoholic household, becoming addicted to alcohol and cocaine, and marrying two addicts in recovery. Her own struggle into recovery from addiction, relationship, and sanity is an inspiration for all readers. This is Talking Addiction and Recovery, the podcast talking, you guessed it, all about addiction and recovery. Join your host, licensed professional counselor Andrew J. Schreier, as he and his guests break down recovery topics with raw honesty, delving into niche conversations around the topics of substance abuse, mental health, and gambling. We intend to meet individuals where they are on their own personal journey of recovery with dignity, respect, and compassion. We'll do more than talk addiction and recovery. We'll explore it. We're glad you've joined us. Here with today's episode, your host, Andrew Schreier. All right, welcome listeners to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. My special guest today is Sarah Michaud. How are you? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so you were uh, fortunate to give me a, a copy of your book, which is Go Crazy, One Psychologist Recovery <laughs> from Codependency and Addiction. And one of the, right. the first questions that I have, which is very interesting, yeah. is it's a, a memoir and a roadmap. And right. as a as a clinician and as a person in the helping profession, you know, we often talk about disclosure. Yes. And, and here you are putting out your story. So I'm I'm curious, how was that for you, not just as a person with lived experience, but also how was that for you as someone in the helping profession? Right. Well, fortunately, I decided to do it kind of at the end of my seen patients. I mean, I've been seeing addicts for 30 years. And in the last like two to three years, it took me two years to write the book. So like at the end of seeing people, I literally, it came out and I think I saw people for another six months. So I kind of planned it that way. Just so like you say, there are boundaries. I don't think my patients wanted necessarily to hear about my stuff. So, um, it was a tough kind of decision, but now just everything's out on the table. And I'm really just trying to get the message out there about codependency recovery, because in my experience with clients over the years, it's the biggest issue. And I hate the word codependency, by the way, 
because it's so overused and I think people don't even know what it means. And so, uh, you know, for me, going back to like the 60s, 70s, when the when it first started and Melody Beattie came out with a book and Adult Children started and Jonathan Bradshaw and all these people started talking about it. It was really kind of the stereotype of the, you know, the housewife and the husband alcoholic. And my, my the reason I'm writing this book is because or I wrote the book is because I feel like most people are codependent in some way or another, whether they're an addict or not, or whether they're married to an addict or not, or whether they grew up in addiction. I just think this codependency, which I really describe as not being able to be who you are, is rampant with most people I meet, and especially in the halls of AA. But I mean, everyone struggles with being authentic in their relationships. So yeah, this I is went great. kind of on a tangent, but yeah it's no that's that's amazing because yeah. like the part of my my questions i wanted to ask you was i've wanted to ask this on the podcast for a while haven't really had the opportunity until now because of the topic of codependency and the way i was good i wanted to bring it up was like there's a lot of issues in our profession that sort of like start in the shadows and grows in the dark yes we, we bring them into light which hopefully then brings more awareness more acknowledgement and yes. we hope that that brings more help. However, yes. I do see it can also go the other way in which is what we're talking about here with language that yes. words become thrown around very like haphazardly oh my without gosh. even really applying it correctly. And we know that with mental health and with substance yes. use um, and codependency is one of them where if I hear about like a family or a relationship <laughs> and someone doesn't seem to be doing what the other person thinks is the right thing to do, but right. that person quickly gets labeled as being codependent. codependent. Oh, so many words right now. We could talk about this forever. Trauma. I mean, how often do you hear trauma now? Trauma, codependency, narcissism, uh, boundaries, all these words that are in the lexicon now. It's like they've been taken kind of from professional interpretations over to just like these general words everybody uses. And I, you know, to answer your first question just quickly, I mean, the re how I kind of manage that professional personal thing is I really thought when looking at all the books on codependency that I felt like I had a lot to say, first of all, because I've worked with addicts for 30 years, but I've also been an addict in recovery for almost 40. So I felt like there weren't any books out there that had someone's story and at the same time, kind of the professional advice as well. So that's why I kind of married the two and shared all that information. So that was my purpose. So I could people could identify with it. And a lot of people that read it say they love it because of that reason. They can identify with the story. Yeah, that's great. I um. Your definition, though, I want to go back to that because please do because oftentimes when we look at codependency, we are looking at um, a relationship dynamic between one yes. person and another, or one person and several, like with a family or a couple. But your definition brings it back to the person. Well, I'll tell you why. Because if you've ever sat in Al-Anon meetings or early on in my career and even in my recovery, it was like the codependent was the victim. 
and the addict was the bad guy. And, you know, because I'm in recovery, I had an alliance also with the addict, although I grew up with addiction. So my mother was an alcoholic. So I get that, you know, I was also a victim or grew up with it. I hate the word, you know, it wasn't necessarily a victim, but I experienced growing up in alcoholism. But I really wanted what I wanted to really portray is that everyone is responsible for their own behavior, including the codependent. You know, it always was set up as, you know, bad guy, good guy. And really what I saw over the years in my practice and with myself is, you know, the codependent was doing behaviors out of their own issues. And so when I saw a couple, I would often say to them, you know, you both have illnesses. They're just different. Because very often the codependent would bring the husband or wife in and want to just get them sober and talk about how bad they are without looking at their own stuff. And so my point really was, after a while, I was like, these people aren't seeing that they are part of the problem, you know? And somebody's, I heard someone on another podcast say it's it's um, victim blaming or um I don't see it that way. I see it as everybody has part, especially in relationships. I mean, there's two people in a relationship. Both people are contributing something to it. Yeah, I remember I worked with a a family therapist for a while, and she used to do this group exercise um, with a large audience. Like, you know, could be like 40, 60 people. And we all sat in a, a circle and she used to pass this a ball of string around yes and have everyone hold the string and very very cleverly as she's explaining these things she would start to do things with the string and she would she would notice like are people holding on tighter are there there people who are like kind of holding it but letting the string just kind of go through but there's some people that just sort of put their um they just, they, they didn't touch it anymore. And she used it to really illustrate that regardless of like anyone's behavior, like when we are in relationships and we are in like a family system, like yes, all of that creates impact. And it's yes. not, it's not just focusing on the impact of the string moving, but it's also on what do we do when that happens and, yes. and looking at our own like tendencies, behaviors, responses yes. to to that. So someone might really grab on tight and try to That's right. to force it. Someone else might be like, Oh, I'm not. That's I'm right. Just, just drop it. Um, That's right. And I felt that was very powerful. Like that, yes. that, that connected with family members to realize even if they weren't ready to look at their own behavior, it was hard for them to realize that, okay, yeah, I do hold on really tight or yeah, I do let go. Or, yes. Like yes. they can, they can resonate that more. I think with that type of exercise. Right. Right. And they don't feel, they don't have to feel like guilty or feel like they're being blamed for something. You know, it's just kind of owning what your part is. Right. I mean, I do think that when people get sober and even, I don't know, maybe it's not just addicts, but people in general, I mean, relationships aren't easy. Right. And I really see it as not just addiction, but the human condition. I mean, we all carry our histories, our childhoods, our wounds or whatever, our resentments, our anger into our relationships. 
And it's so easy in a relationship to start pointing the finger rather than, wow, how am I creating this? What is my part? What, you know, what have I contributed? You know, sometimes addicts will say to me or an alcoholic will say, geez, I feel so guilty. I, you know, my poor wife and they'll go on and on and they've been married for 20 years. And I will say, and some people may be offended by this, your wife stayed for 20 years. I mean, it, it wasn't just you, right? Both people were in that relationship for whatever issue. So uh, you know what I'm saying? Both people have some responsibility. So that's why I wrote the book to begin with. And I always notice that too, when, when there's some people looking at it as, you know, it's this one behavior and, yes. and substance use always gets like the bad rap. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a card that gets picked for right anything. Like sometimes relationships have their own struggles and it doesn't mean it's because of that, like remove substance use in their relationships that still. And have then you see what's issues. really there. You got it. But we do see that when I notice my work with families over time and let's say I get someone and their goal is, you know, they want to be abstinent and they achieve that. I don't see all of a sudden the relationship is, is no all great and grand now. Like there's some things that are noticeable where it's like, this is good, but you still see resentment there. You still see, um, oh, my, my issues with communication, all that. Absolutely. In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think very often people have been you know, one person's been a substance abuser, the other person has been subject to it, and for whatever reason has been in it. And when the substance goes down, the substance is a very easy target to say, oh, it's just the booze. And if they stop drinking, we'll be all set. And then it's really, a, it can be a symptom. I mean, it could have been there before, but it's also just kind of this easy excuse when Many relationships after the substance is down, they realize they hardly know each other. I mean, that happens a lot. Yeah. It happens a lot. And that's why and, a lot of like recreating yeah. or it's a new relationship, not absolutely going back to an old one or, or, and there's sometimes um, one thing that comes up a lot in couples work is I don't want to say a lot like this is everyone, but there's also a discussion around, you know, like being with or, with couples of the, the idea of someone right, and, and not, not who they are, who they that, are. That there's this idea you have of them that if they could do this, if they were like this, if they, I mean, this is, this is a person that you're creating that isn't the one that you are with. And that's, that, that can be a challenge in, you know, couples work and family work and all that. <laughs> well, we could talk about that forever because I'm having this conversation with a buddy of mine a lot because he's just started dating. And I think I'm a little tainted because I've been in relationships for so many years that I always say that first 90 days is literally one big projection. <laughs> that, that, you know, our idea of love, our idea of what we want someone to be, everything we see is through this lens, again, of our history. It's very hard to see who someone really is for quite a while. Or to be, or even to be ourselves in the relationship. You know, that's part of what this whole healing from codependency for me has been about is getting just more and more in touch with 
Who do I want to be? What matters to me? Who am I in relationship? What do I want? What do I need? Not being externally focused all the time, which is what most people do because they're operating out of a fear, fear of not being loved, fear of not being attracted, not being liked. And so they'll do all these things to get someone kind of in, but then you have to maintain that and you get further and further away from yourself. So, you know, it's tricky. Yeah. There was a, there's a, it's a weird quote. You probably wouldn't think this is what I underlined as a quote in your book, but one of them was, it's impossible to feel 72 degrees and sunny all the time. <laughs> and I underline that because, you know, as an individual dealing with that, right? Like as, as a person, then you add in a family, you add in a significant other, you know, it's not just like one weather forecast. It is, Absolutely. It, is it is several. So then it's how do, how do I be okay when it is 72 and sunny but a family member of mine or, or my significant other is currently in uh 60 in rain. Like, absolutely. Like, I, I think there's, when we're in those relationships, we, we struggle when we see people, you know, struggling, you know, like when they are. Yes. I mean, that's, you're literally explaining the kind of fertile ground for codependent behavior. Because, and it reminds me of when I first moved to Boston, I was living in California. I met my, who became my husband and he moved here. I had a job at McLean Hospital. I was going to start this job and he moved with me. And the minute, and I'm back around my family and he started getting super depressed. And that same phenomenon, like you say, it's really hard when you're feeling okay and your partner isn't necessarily. And how do I take care of myself? How can I still be compassionate, still be loving, but not get into that trying to fix them or change them or save them? And what is that about? And it's still about, again, it's staying focused on yourself. Not that I may not have feelings about that person being that way, especially if it lasts a while, but it's when we get hooked into focusing more on them than our own well-being, that's the recipe for disaster. And it's funny because that saying came from a friend of mine in a meeting and he said, all addicts want to be 72 and sunny all the time. And I just love that because, you know, like when we were using, we were always trying to find the perfect combination to just feel exactly right, you know? So anyways, go ahead. No, you see a lot of people with that too, you know, like even tying it to the weather, like, oh, right. How much, yeah. how much mood gets impacted by that? Where it's like, if it yes. could always, if it could just be like this, then right. it'd be a great day. The moment, oh, rain might come or right. Right. Uh, I know. That, that throws everything off in perspective. And it, it was just really interesting to dive into with, the codependency and with, you know, relationships, how that plays a role in that. And I like how you describe that. Like, that's like the fertile ground of, you know, of codependency. I I know I want to bring this scenario to you because this was, this was something that several years ago, I realized this, this to me seems like some codependency and it, 
it, it had me look at it and see in a different way. So I was working at a residential program okay. and the substance use, they lived there. They couldn't leave. They couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't have a cell phone. And they each got like, you know, maybe a half an hour time spot a day to call maybe like a, a family member, a loved one. Okay. Um, Department of Corrections contracted. So pretty, pretty structured, pretty right? Pretty serious stuff and very yeah, structured. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, and this was also the time where we were having a lot of, when I started, there was a lot of, you know, sometimes um, older adult males in the program. Yeah. And alcohol, maybe cocaine. But after a while, we were starting to see younger adults in their thirties who were having struggles with like the prescription opiates and, and yes. heroin. Right. So yes. I remember there was this one uh, kid he just seemed like a kid because right. so young, right. but probably like in his early thirties had a girlfriend. Yeah. And I remember he was waiting for her to call. Yes. And he called her and she didn't answer. And then he was waiting to see if like she might call back. And I just remember seeing his emotional disruption, like nothing else was okay for him. No, his his, his mind was going all over the place. Um, He was, he was having like some pretty irrational thinking about like, yeah, where she was, was what she doing. Um, The turning point was we were about to have, I think group was going to start maybe in like 15 minutes. So now he's also like, well, if group starts and like, I can't, like, I can't get the call. Yeah. Right. I know but, that feeling. But then all of a sudden I remember this is what really sort of gave me like an aha moment was she, she called and all of a sudden it was just like a snap. Felt okay. He was just like back to normal. Like that entirely Absolutely. went away. And part of it was like, you know, he wasn't okay. Like, yes. With, without her. Yes. And then the moment, you know, he knew like he, I don't want to say he had her, but the moment that that connection was reestablished, like that's right. He was okay, but it was such a, such a salient example. Yeah. Such like, a great example because you're, you're really that whole scenario is such a brilliant example of really what co-crazy is about, which is my feelings are totally run by how someone's responding to me. So basically he gave her, and again, if I was his therapist, it's not even about her. It's probably about his history and his mother and whatever, but he gave her that power over how he felt. And that's what codependency is. It's like, I can't, you know, manage or have emotional management or stability on my own until my child is okay, my spouse is okay, whomever you're codependent with, you know, it could be anybody, it could be your boss, it could, you know, parents with children is a real button for me because I've seen so many parents go crazy with their kids and not let them have their feelings. And especially, you know, I mean, my great example of this, and this is just another example, like you're saying, of this guy in the treatment, a mom I know in town, I have a 22-year-old, so our kids went to high school together, and then they all went off to college, and I remember meeting her for coffee, and she 
told me with great anxiety that she is calling him in the morning to wake him up. Now he's at college. Now, who is that really about? That's not about her kid. That's about her and her own anxiety and fears about, it's probably not even about him. It's about her own history. Just like this gentleman in residential, that relationship is just a replaying of some old fear that he had, right? And, you know, we don't know what that's about. But again, that's what is so critical to me. It gets played out in every future relationship. By the way, I know you just got married, didn't you? Like mm -hmm. a year ago? Yes. I mean, so, I mean, it happens in our, you know, to me, the more intense the love is and the, the more possibility of the fear, right? So it's kind of, again, is this recipe to have those behaviors because we care so much. And Not I, always, I, but I'm just saying. Yeah. And when I worked yeah. with, when I worked with him, you know, when we, we use that example to really open up it's the a great door, example, um, because it was a pretty, like, it, it wasn't anything really, um, it was about a phone call. Right. So but it, it was of, so obvious. Yeah. So obvious, but it's emotional state. It was easy to broach it with him to be like, Hey, you know, like when you um, were waiting for that phone call, like it wasn't That's like right. I was trying to dive deep into something that yes. he might not be ready to, but with him, you know, I started looking at, you know, like the, the behaviors that he has. And I was just kind of looking at it really from him that like, you know, when you didn't hear from her, you know, and she didn't answer or call you back, like you, you weren't okay. Right. Then the second that she did, you were right. okay. That's and part, right. of, part of the phrasing I worked with him was like, you know, your ability to, to take care of you and to, to manage that into, even if she didn't answer, I can still be okay. That's right. You, you, you weren't able to do that. You know, if right. she, if she didn't answer and then group went on, you probably would have been a, a disaster. You know, you right. He would have had an opportunity to get in touch with, you know, it's, I give that exact same example in the book. I think when I'm talking about obsessive compulsive thinking, I give this example of, you know, this woman who, same thing. The, she couldn't get in touch with her boyfriend. And she started making up all these stories like he was dead on the side of the road and he, and he had fallen asleep. And that's her own projection from her history. Do you know what I mean? She had, you know, a dad who had abandoned her and all these fears. And that was getting reenacted with this boyfriend. And I also say that a lot of times when people start obsessive thinking or perseverative thinking, it's to avoid the underlying feeling states. You know, uh, obsessive thinking sometimes is a way to stay away from how I'm feeling. So, yeah, if I yeah. can keep my mind busy, then I don't have to tap into what's happening. And and some people, when there's uncertainty, they think if they can <laughs> chase and chase and chase it. That, it that, yeah. But normally those things are not, you know, that those, those things just keep, you know, fueling it and feeling that's it. right. There's right. a, there's another really great part of your book that I want to talk about, which sure. was your quote was it's often hard to see the truth about others. And I kind of want to talk to you about, you know, what happens when, when people start to play more detective and investigator 
you know, search for the truth. And sometimes when I see people try to do that even more, the relationship so they're a little parent. Are you saying they get kind of paranoid about it? they become more controlling? I'm trying to figure out what you mean. Like I see people who they they just need to know the truth. Like they don't trust someone and this person can say something and do something. And there's still a part of them that that doesn't know if they're being truthful. Like, well, did they really go out and use or did they go out and engage in a behavior that they shouldn't and sometimes i see people try to be more detective you know like they're trying to um check i would phones. say they're, already, they're trying they're already, to they're yeah, already hooked into the code crazy for sure and i just kind of yeah it's a it's a it's part of that thing where people think if they if they knew the whole truth then yeah. then i would be okay it's the same thing you're exactly right it's like i have this trust issue so I'm going to keep questioning, you know, my partner if they're five minutes late or whatever, rather than resolving where my trust issue comes from. And the fact is, I can't control anything my partner is really doing. I can control how I feel about it and what I say about it and set some limits. But if that's a pattern of behavior where someone needs more and more information, the thing is, it doesn't matter how much information. It's still it's still their issue. Do you know, and there's, you and there's said still it. things that will, like, you can never know all. No, you can never know. Like, I realize that trap when I'm a clinician, and right. if I have someone in session, and if I if I'm ever trying to focus so much on, like, is this a lie, and right. how do I like when I start to try to be more detective, I think I right. lose my ability to be the better counselor that I can be because now I'm trying to like like step into a role that I don't have to right. do. Like that's not my role to investigate and, and determine and detect, but it's easy for people to fall into that. Yes. Well, and it's really looking at what's the motive behind it. Like what is happening where I feel like I need to do that. I mean, if we're working with addicts, let's face it, addicts lie all the time. So, I mean, it's like, it's really... You know, I just recently saw a client who, her, you know, we terminated November 1st because I sold my house and kind of finished my practice. And, you know, she ended up relapsing and it turned out that she'd been lying to me about some stuff. And I thought, wow, like you still can never know. And you're right. I mean, we can only deal with what our clients are presenting. I mean, we can explore and ask some questions if we want more information, but if it becomes more about us than what's right for them, that's really the question. If you're doing it more because you're having some counter-transference of some feelings, that's the issue, you know, rather than trying to get some more information about something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 How do you have that conversation with, you know, the, the family member who is, you know, yeah struggling with if i you know if i catch them and they they yeah. did do this and i'm and, and plus i always tell them like the one thing that i i do use is by doing this do you think catching them will make you like this is going to feel better like this is 
so it's like a trap they they have like this anxiety and this worry about not knowing but also like what you are attempting to discover or search for is also not healthy for you no because like, it's it, it only it's so it only works for a split second say you do find a bottle then what you know what i mean or whatever or find out about i mean it's always and that's what this book is really about that co-addict i'll call them the whole idea is to stop focusing externally and focus internally because that drive to find, so, oh, if I find them doing whatever is really about me. And the more I focus on myself, the more happiness can occur and peace can occur. Because if I'm focused on what they're doing, then my state of mind and my happiness is always in the hands of someone else. And that's just no way to live. Right. Think, I mean, that's really what it's about. Do you think these are things? I mean, I think I think I know the answer, but I want to ask you anyways, because I look at like mental health, coping skills. These are things that we should be um, talking about and educating and learning at a much younger age. Right. <laughs> like not usually I I introduce coping skills and knowing things about what goes on way after the fact, not like at a prime time, like a young age. Right. But we don't really do a lot with teaching youth, teaching kids about these relationship dynamics. Right. And about being okay with yourself and, and being okay. Yes. And have, you know, doing esteem, you know, it's like that esteemable acts to have self-esteem. I mean, the trouble is, and I mean, this might be too Freudian of me, but I really think those early object relationships, right? My relationships with my parents are going to be the paradigms for what I play out, right? So it really depends. I mean, I can honestly say, I mean, looking at my son's friends and how their parents were, they're, you know, a lot of them now are having struggles with relationships. And for whatever reason, whether the parent was too overly involved with them, I mean, I think the two extremes, either neglect or over-involvement, but you're right. If the parenting relationship is, is problematic, then they have to be taught in another way. I mean, you know, how many people have great parent relationships? I mean, hopefully some. But if a kid's growing up in an environment where it's not the best and that parent isn't validating him or whatever, having time for him or her or, you know, being an appropriate parent, it's hard for them to not then bring those issues into my romantic relationships or my friendships. I mean, I see this played out all the time with patients with, you know, this, like people start going to meetings and then they'll try to have some friendships, but then they'll believe, oh, they're, they're best friends and I'm not. And all these like junior high school and dynamics get played out. I mean, friendships is a whole other arena that a lot of early relationship dynamics get played out with. And especially in recovery, and it's really important because connections are like literally the quintessential component for people's success. So it can be fraught with all kinds of fears and old issues coming out. But you're, do you work with kids a lot? Not, you not majority, but I, I tend to work with like um, high school kids, Family. sometimes yeah. young adults. Um, yeah. I normally get the 
the kid got in trouble at school yes, for right. something and then they they got to come see me um, yeah. and then I always say when you work with with kids you work with the parents so that that almost becomes a oh. an automatic there's the rare few cases where absolutely there's a there's a a kid or a teenager and the parents are like hey let, let this be between you two. We're right. just going right. to sit out in the hallway. Like right. 95% it's, they're going to come in for oh. some of it, part of it. Um, but you bring up a good point with, you know, we talk about all these, you know, significant others, relationships, families, but you did touch up on a big point with like friends. Right. And those relationships, right. um, we know how important they are in those, those early years, but we kind of like, we leave it alone after they like, well, now they're out right. of, now they're out of school. Now they're on to this, but those are, right. I think that's an area of, you know, unaddressed dynamics. Right. And it's, it is so critical. I mean, I know my son, his male friends were the most, were just so, so important. And I think God, we could get into this whole topic though, with isolation now and all that stuff. But yes, I mean, the bottom line is co-crazy behavior can get played out in any relationship, you know, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship. I mean, one of my closest friends was a vice president of a company and her biggest co-crazy relationship was with her boss. So she Mm. was the vice president there and their boss was the CEO and she would be wounded intermittently, hurt intermittently angry intermittently because all this mother child dynamic was getting replayed so it can happen anywhere that's a good point like even yeah. now when you say like the the boss relationship absolutely. Like, yeah absolutely i mean mm. how many times have you heard oh my gosh my boss is so abusive but they won't leave their job or i mean it's just some reenactment of something how if, if you were working with someone, what's the best place? And th- this may be very general, depending on the situation. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we cater and we sometimes, you know, like approach every person different, but like, do you, do you have like a, a starting point where you try to, in, in your past work and stuff that you've done, like where you've tried right. to, these aren't easy issues to bring up. This isn't Absolutely. an easy spot. Absolutely. To, right. Like, um, the way I saw the door opening with that one story that we talked about was yes. the phone yes. call and to be able to just sort of acknowledge that and, and do that. But that's not, I, I think that's one of those special stories that don't happen all the time. Right. <laughs> so, right. so what's a, what's a, a way or a starting point that you have found can be really like that opening door to getting into some of this work with people. Well, I do think, I mean, I think most of the people that I see, I mean, most of them are getting sober, but once they get sober, the biggest problem is their relationships. Now that's, I see probably 95% women. So I'm not sure if for men, you know, the men I've seen, sometimes the priority was the relationship and sometimes it wasn't, but I think if someone's struggling in a relationship, it's looking at, well, what keeps happening? What are the patterns? Do you know what I mean? What are the, what are the certain situations that are upsetting for you? And then why are they upsetting? I always talk about looking at the activations. 
So, and you said it earlier, and I've done so much work with different couples specialists and literally every single one of those, you know, therapists that works as a couple talks about literally resentment and anger being the biggest issue in a couple. So I think when people come in and they're upset or angry about something, it's a place to start looking at, geez, how do we connect that present anger to the past in the sense of what activates you? Oh, well, they're late all the time. Geez, well, you know, what are you worried about when they're late? And you kind of just keep doing a deeper and deeper dive around what is the old fear that keeps churning up and then connecting it back. Because again, it's really getting people out of like, yes, you have this present relationship issue, but it's really been there much longer. It may feel like it's about your husband, but it really started way, you know, a long time ago. So trying to get them in the practice, you know, the chapter on anger for me was the most difficult and to me the most important because I feel like anger covers up so many other issues and it's such a ripe kind of thing we can grab onto. Someone gets upset. Well, what's the upset about? Do you know what I mean? Um, and what did it activate? And just kind of looking at it and taking it back there because anger gets in the way of a lot of relationships and not just anger, but people not even knowing they're angry and having it come out in other ways. So oh, I like that because I, I imagine like some couples or families I've seen in my time. And I, I think back on times where the anger is being yes like showing or it's 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 there's something's been activated yes and I, and I wonder like how that could have been been used right there to be like hey you know what what just right. what just what just happened there right. like what, what was activated and, you even know, if, and even if they don't well what do you mean what was activated and i go that's you, right then it's like a a way to like even bring awareness to it but to that, access it that framing is a way that is you know what's with your anger like that that's <laughs> i know well you know what's a really great book have you ever heard of harville hendrix yeah harville hendrix so i did some of their training and they just have some really great ways of these questions like when i worked with couples i used their model because there are these great questions that they use where one person you know, expresses an upset and their partner mirrors it. And then there's another question. Well, what does it remind you of? What, what are you afraid of? Like there's this series of questions and the partner literally just kind of mirrors and then they switch and they see that what the person's upset about is not about them. It's really about the past. So it's a, they have some great exercises and it's really helpful, especially if you're in a couple. So you don't personalize everything that's going on with your partner. Right. Because right. normally it's not about you, right? That sounds great. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, one last, two last questions. One Go is ahead. You, you wrote the book, but you also have a YouTube channel. Can you explain what, what that is for, for yes. listeners? Yes, I will. So I wrote the book and I've been kind of 
getting it out there and promoting it and doing podcasts. And then I have a friend of mine who I actually met during when the virus started. I got on a morning meeting and I met all these people from other places in the country. And a bunch of people were from Cape Cod, which is a part of Massachusetts. And one of the people, this guy, Finn, he and I really connected. He's an attorney and he was married at the time. His wife has since passed away. But he and I had the same sense of humor. He's super bright. He wanted to know about codependency. And so we started this channel on codependency. And we said to ourselves, look, we don't want it to be really intense. We don't, we're not going to go down the intelligence you know, it's not going to be an educational thing. It's going to be fun. And we're going to give examples from our lives. So that's what we do. And we try to take something out of the book or take something out of a relationship issue and give an example of our lives and then give a tool at the end. So it's um, leaving crazy town with Finn and Sarah, because those that's the title of all the tools I have in the book, leaving crazy town. Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah. everybody knows everybody's been to crazy town. Yeah. If you've been in a relationship, you've been to crazy town. That's great. Any yeah. any any final parting words, um, either about your oh, book gosh. or in general, um, something you want to listen to hear? Yeah, I just really think if you're having a relationship struggle and you're focusing on the other person. Buy the book or say to yourself, what is happening for me? I can't like really getting in touch with that. You can't control the other person. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is control. And the thing with co-crazy behavior is people become very controlling and you can do that in a variety of ways, just like with anger can be hidden. Controlling behaviors can be the same way. You can be controlling in a passive way. So it's the best thing someone can do for themselves is really keep the focus on them. And the two things I say in the book that are the most important is really create some courage to speak up and not speak up and point the finger and speak up about what's wrong with them, but speak up and share your own thoughts and feelings. That to me is the, I mean, I just had an experience a week ago with a bunch of people away on vacation where things happened. And the reason they happen is because people didn't speak up. It's so basic, but so many people don't do it because they're afraid. And that's like the biggest advice I can give. That's great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Your your insights talking about this has been amazing. I think listeners are going to take a lot away and uh, looking at your book and the, the YouTube, which will be exciting to see. I really want to thank you for all the the knowledge you, you dropped on us today. <laughs> Andrew, anytime, anytime. We're all in relationships, so it's important. And good luck with yours. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and listen, all right, my friend. Listen, uh, find her book. We'll we'll post links to where you can get it, and you can follow her and her YouTube. But uh, the book is "Go Crazy: One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction: A Memoir and Roadmap to Freedom." And once again, Sarah, thanks for joining, and we hope you learned something. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can learn more about our guest, Sarah Michaud, at her website, drsarahmichaud.com, and her YouTube channel, Leaving Crazy Town. You can also find her book, Go Crazy, One Psychologist's Recovery from Codependency and Addiction, a memoir and roadmap to freedom on Amazon. 
You've been listening to Talking Addiction and Recovery with Andrew J. Schreier. We're so glad you've joined us and invite you to connect further with the show and these topics at www.andrewjschreier.com. That's Andrew J. S. C. H. R. E. I. E. R.com. You can also email us directly at talkingaddictionandrecovery at gmail.com and connect on social media Instagram at Talking Addiction and Recovery, Facebook, Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast, and Twitter at TalkAR underscore podcast. To stay connected and never miss an episode, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Until next time, friends, let's keep talking addiction and recovery.